You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Start with a little game of finish the sentence, okay? This should be easy. I bet most people get it wrong. You are what you, everyone's afraid of it. I heard several different things. A little bit louder. You are what you, love, did someone say love? Let's go home. So that's like, that's the whole sermon right there. Yeah. You are what you eat, somebody said. That's good. I figured everyone would say that one. That was kind of the thing that came to mind most quickly for me. Anybody else? You are what you, I can't, you're not, you're not loud enough. You, You are what you are. Oh, fair enough. Bit of a tautology, but we'll go with it. That's fine. If you said you are what you think, then you would be in line with some of the greatest thinkers in the history of the world. Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius said a man's life is what his thoughts make of it. James Allen, English philosopher, said as a man thinks, so he is. As he continues to think, so he remains. Ralph Waldo Emerson Poet, a man is what he thinks about all day long. Earl Nightingale, we become what we think about. Mark Twain, life consists of the storm of thoughts that is forever flowing through one's head. And perhaps most famously, Rene Descartes, even if you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard this, I think, therefore I am. Throughout history, right? Ancient world, Middle Ages, Enlightenment, Renaissance, modern period, throughout the history of the world, we have taken our thought life and drawn a sense of identity from it. We are what we think, or at least that's what the philosophers and the poets say. And we might be tempted to think Paul is right in line with them. When we read Romans 12, after all, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. And isn't that about my thought life? Isn't that about my thinking? And it is, but is that all it's about? And what we find out as we dig into Romans 12 and as we reflect on what Paul is calling us to, that it's not necessarily primarily about our thought life, though that's not excluded, And that's not even the primary command here. It's kind of a secondary thing. It's an instrumental sort of command. For Paul, our thought life isn't the first thing. Our worship is. For Paul, what we think does not define us. Who we worship does. And that runs all the way through his thought. From the beginning of Romans to the end, we're going to see what I think does not define me, who I worship does. Romans 12 is famous for this initial imperative, isn't it? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you've got this, take your body and present it to God, 
And then he takes two words that are drawn from Israel's temple worship life and applies them to it. One is sacrifice. And we all know if you're a Jewish guy in the first century and you use the word sacrifice, then you have the temple and the animals and all of the different sorts of sacrifices, whether it's incense or doves or lambs or whatever it is, all of that's in the background. Blood and guts and death and all and forgiveness of sins and all those things, right? Living sacrifice, living, most sacrifices are dead, so like make a note of living sacrifice. But that's worship language. And then he says, if that's not clear enough, let me just fill it in a little bit. This is your worship. Like, take your body, hands, face, leg, all of my body, and present it to God. This is your act of worship. Now, that commandment, and it is a commandment, it's an imperative, He's not, it's not a suggestion, it's not, hey, you know, if you have time next week, present your body to God, if you can fit it in in between things. Right? That's not what's happening here. In fact, the significance of this command is amplified when you realize that Romans 12 is a turning point in the letter as a whole. Right? So Romans breaks in and down into some big chunks. Loosely speaking, chapters 1 through 11 are theologically oriented. There are some commands in there. We've looked at some of them in the last few weeks. But he's talking about atonement. And he's talking about sin. And he's talking about justification. And he's talking about holiness. And there's all these big theological ideas that have ethical implications. But it's very much, he's very much thinking theologically and he's talking in, the, in that way. Declarative statements. Like here's, here's reality. Here's truth. Here is fact. And then we get to chapter 12, and you get this, therefore, and we've all, we say this every time we run into it, pay attention to those connecting words and see what they're, use, like, why is that, well, therefore, what's it, therefore is the cliche. And then we get to chapter 12 through the end of the letter, and you get all of these commandments, just one right after another. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection. You think, Paul, like, can you run out of commandments anytime soon? Because I'm having a hard time keeping up with this. And it goes on for chapter after chapter. Like, he has instruction about table fellowship, and he has instruction about worship, and he has instruction about relationship to the governing authorities, and he, like all of these instructions. And we think, we, like, we were overloaded with the theology, Paul, and now you got to go and get in our business. With the commandments. And Paul says, yeah, that's what the gospel does. So you get this big therefore at the beginning of chapter 12. And that one word links all of the theology in Romans 1 through 11 to all of the ethics in Romans 12 through 16. So when he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. And we think, mercies of God? Well, if I'm reading Romans, and I've already read chapters 1 through 11... And I hear that language, mercies of God. What does that call to mind? Well, I remember back in chapter 1, chapter 2, about how like, everyone is a sinner. All of us have chased after idols. Everyone has exchanged the glory of God for a lie. That's not just Gentiles, chapter 2. The, Jew, the covenant people of God, the Jewish people have done it too. So that in chapter 3, Paul can summarize the whole argument to that point. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. And then he meets that, just 
depressing reality with the gospel. Justification, the declaration that God says not guilty, comes through Jesus. It's a gift. You can't do anything. You can't manipulate the situation. It's not something you deserve. or you. It's just a gift. There's no merit involved. By the mercies of God, He has accepted you without regard to your past. Despite your idolatry, despite my darkness, He has accepted me. And Paul's just getting warmed up, isn't he? We get to chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we hear about how sin has come in, but then grace has spread further than sin spread. And we get to chapter 6, and Paul starts talking about, okay, you've got a body, God's given you a body, don't take your part, body parts and give them to sin, instead give them to God. And remember, you're a slave to that which you submit yourself, so if you submit yourself to sin after having been set free, like before you didn't have a choice about submitting yourself to sin, now that Jesus has joined you to himself, you don't have to do that anymore. You might give ground to the enemy. You don't have to. God's plan for you is better than that. It's bigger than that. It's more lovely than that. It's more beautiful than that. And it's called holiness. And life. And he gives his spirit so that you don't have to Give yourself to corruption, chapter 8. We've been through these things, and we know when Paul talks about the mercies of God, it's this one phrase that just encapsulates the entirety of chapters 1 through 11. Like, if you could sum up Romans 1 through 11 with three words, mercies of God to Jew and Gentile in Christ, whose arms were stretched, whose hands were pierced, back was beaten, whose face was pierced with thorns for us in our salvation, who was raised to give life, abundant life to us. When Paul says mercies of God, all of that, all of that, from the first 11 chapters, both to Jew and Gentile, chapters 9 through 11, all of that is caught up together. And on that basis, right, in light of God's unimaginable grace to you, in light of God's overwhelming mercy, offer your body to Him in worship. Like Those two things are the same thing. Offer your body to Him in worship. That means for Paul, sacrifice. And this is crucial, friends. I mean, in our world, where worship is a production oftentimes, and kind of like a big entertainment thing, and we want to be operating at a high level of excellence to honor God, but at the end of the day, like the production quality is not the thing that should attract us. The gospel is. So Paul says worship involves a sacrifice. It ought to be a little bit hard. You should have to give something. And we're tempted. I'm tempted. Like we have, we sit around and staff, how can we make this easy for people to show up? And sometimes I want to say, how can we make it hard? 
how can I make following Jesus hard on you? That's one of the most important questions. Right now you're like, this is not a fun sermon. I mean, really? Come on. We're here, aren't we? Just let it sink in, right? Present your bodies, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Where do I need to say no to myself to say yes to Jesus? I mean, after all, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. That sounds a lot like living sacrifice to me. Deny yourself. That sounds a lot like living sacrifice to me. Paul and Jesus, same page. And, and how does this work out? Like, what's the consequence? So here's the way we need to think about the structure of this chapter. So you've got this one major commandment. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. Like, that's the first imperative. Take your body and give it to God. Number one commandment. Well, Paul, how do I do that? And Paul's answer is, you've got to not be conformed to the world, right? So there's a, there's a world out there and there's a world with lots of values, and those values cannot shape your values. Right? So think about the values of right, the secular world, whether it's political, whether it's entertainment, um, whether it's market-driven, whatever the values are, those things, Paul says, like, do not let your heart, life, mind, soul, psychology, all of that, don't let that be conformed to the values outside in the world. Instead, you want to be transformed, and that transformation happens this way by the renewing of your minds. Now, we read that, and we live after Descartes, who said, remember what he said, I think, therefore I am, and we think of ourselves as fundamentally thinking things. Like, I'm a thinking thing, and apparently it's not just us. I gave you like five or six influential thinkers since the ancient world who agree with this. Like, we are fundamentally thinkers, fundamentally thinking things, and how we think shapes our life. And we've all heard that before, haven't we? I mean, everybody has heard that before. Here's my problem with that. There are all kinds of times in my life where I think the right thing and do the wrong thing. I know I shouldn't yell at my kids. I've thought about it a lot. Does that work? Like, is that sufficient? <laughs> is it? Is thinking enough? Is knowing and having a strategy and having a plan, is it enough to transform me? You, I mean, think about your life. When was the last time you knew the right thing to do and you did not do it? Man, I know I should go to bed. Ah. It's going to be hard to get up and go to church in the morning when the buzzer goes off or you know, a phone buzzes at me and I've got to get up and I want to go back to sleep and it's going to be hard and the kids, their socks won't match and I'm just like, I should just go to bed because it's going to be a battle tomorrow. I really want to watch the end of the show. Like We know the right thing to do, but it's not enough to motivate actual transformation in our lives. And so I want to say... Like Aurelius, Twain, Emerson, Descartes. Like they're not altogether wrong. Our thoughts are crucial. But changing our minds isn't enough to change our lives. Like changing our cognition. Think changing my, like I can know the right thing and not do it. The reason is because my thinking 
is subject to lots of other things, isn't it? My thinking is subject to my emotions. I may know the right thing to do, I just don't feel like it. My thinking is subject to my psychology. I may know the right thing to do, but you know, I'm in a you know somebody spoke unkindly to me at work the other day, and I'm still kind of in this spiral, and it's just not healthy. And I like I know, but I just I can't motivate myself because I'm dealing with some things. My psychology or my my thought life is subject to sin, isn't it? So I know the right thing to do, but at the end of the day, like sometimes the old master is alluring. So if thinking isn't enough, how does transformation happen? Like if just getting my thought life in order isn't enough, how does transformation happen? And let me say this before we proceed. For Paul, this language of renewing your mind is not limited to our brain. Like for Paul, the, this is not primarily a cognitive thing. In fact, because we think mind and we think brains, propositions, arguments, like persuade me, give me a good argument, give me some reasons why I should do that sort of thing. And we think in terms of, you know, like you want me to vote for that person? Give me some reasons. You want me to Give my time and energy to that. Give me some reasons. Like we think in terms of our minds and our cognition and rationality. But for Paul, it, I mean, almost, it might be better just to translate this, be transformed by the renewing of your character. Be transformed by the renewing of your attitude. Be transformed by the renewing of your heart. Right? Because for Paul, this word mind isn't just like the thing, my brain on a stick, like analyzing arguments and and. And, and reasons, it's my whole disposition, it's my whole being, it's what is a human being becoming whole, it's my attitude, my character, my psychology, my emotion, like all of these things are captured by Paul's language of mind. So in Philippians, when he says, have the mind of Christ, he's not saying, you know, get Jesus' brain cells in your brain, that's not what he's doing, he's like, the character and the disposition of Christ Right? Did not look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Philippians 2, read that one this afternoon. Have the mind of Christ. Take on the character of a servant. Right? That's about a disposition. It's about a posture. What is my posture when it comes to the transformation of my life? Is my posture oriented toward Jesus in worship? Or is it oriented toward something else in false worship? So if thinking isn't enough, and if mind for Paul is more than cognition, right, just arguments and rationality, then what, like, how does transform by the renewing of your mind, what does that mean? How does that work? How do I do it? What, what action can I take? And here's the thing I want to encourage us to think about. Right? If what I think doesn't define me, who I worship does, then we need to begin thinking about how worship either forms us or deforms us. And how it forms our desire and how it forms our loves. Because I would submit to you primarily, friends, we are not primarily thinking things. 
We are primarily worshipers and lovers. Drawing heavily on a theologian named James Smith, and if you want to look him up, I highly commend reading his stuff. Uh, Ridge, You Are What You Love is the title of one of his books. So there you go. Maybe you've read it. We're not primarily thinking things. Not just a brain. We are worshipers. We are lovers. And if I go back to those scenarios where I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it, it's really about, it's less about my thought process, it's more about my desires, isn't it? Like, I know the right thing to do right now. I know I should be patient. I just don't want to. <laughs> At the end of, like, in the moment, I really don't want to be patient with my family. I have a desire to vindicate myself, and I will do it. And that's about love. It's about self-love. It's also about worship. It's about self-worship, and that's really idolatry, isn't it? Right? What I think doesn't define me. Who I worship does. I can think the right things and do the wrong things. And the reason I do the wrong things is really because I'm loving and worshiping myself, which defines me instead of Jesus who died for me. This involves a radical reorientation of the way we think about ourselves, friends. It's crucial if we want to be whole. Think about Romans 12 in contrast with Romans 1. Romans 1 is all about how humanity, Paul says, exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And instead of worshiping God, worshiped images of created things, birds, reptiles, mammals, all idols. The consequence of that was a darkened mind, and we remember for Paul, mind isn't just my brain, it's this sort of complex of psychology and emotions and heart and soul, like, oh, this just my disposition, character, and attitude, right? So the fundamental sin in Romans 1 is idolatry or false worship, and it has a deformative effect. You worship the wrong thing or person, a false god, whether it's yourself or some statue or some other thing, it leads to a darkened character. You offer your body in worship to the God who loves you and gave himself for you. You are transformed. You offer yourself to false worship, to idolatry. You are deformed or conformed to this world. You offer your body, your life, your, your, your whole being to the triune God, creator of all things. You are transformed to embody his character. We are not primarily thinking things. We are worshipers. What I think does not define me who I worship does. And if I want to make sense of my life, that shift has to change. If I want to make sense of my motivations, that shift has to change. If I want to make sense of what I do and who I am and what God's called me to be and why I'm such a jerk to some people, <laughs> talking about you, not me, of course, that shift has to change. 
How does it change? We need to understand that worship is our primary identity. I don't think it is for most of us. For most of us, worship is limited to Sunday mornings. Or sometimes, if we want to feel good about ourselves, we say things like, well, I can worship in the deer stand just as easily as I can at church. Don't raise your hand if you've ever said that to yourself. Ladies, figure out the appropriate analogy. I'm short on those today. Just go for it. I've heard golfing, too. I can worship on the golf course as easily as I can in the church. Creator, creator, like grass and and that assumes, right, that worship is primarily a thing that I can, like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be by myself and I'm going to orient my thoughts towards God and, like, by all means, do that. But everything Paul says in the rest of the letter as a whole, and particularly in the part that we just read, Romans 12, 1 through 13, presupposes the gathering of the church. For one thing, he talks about the gifts that God gives to the body of Christ and how the complementary nature of those gifts are crucial. So different people do different things. All of the members come together in a community of believers, the body of Christ, one body, one community, with a variety of gifts. Some are teachers. Some sing well. Some are gifted with administration. Some are really good at compassion, and we put them in charge of the ministries that involve compassion. All of these things. So Paul's commandment to offer yourself to God, your body, not just like some sort of idea of yourself, but your body, your, your parts to God, assumes a church, a local church, a specific expression of the body of Christ in a place at a certain time. And if we kind of back away from that and go, well, you know, I can, like me and Jesus got our own thing going, then we have no idea how transformation actually happens, and we won't experience it. One reason the last year is crucial for the life of the church. We have got to figure out, coming out of this thing, how to recover the gathered body of Christ. It helps to understand a little bit more about how our bodies work. So we've kind of tried to draw the last few weeks on a little bit of neuroscience. I'm not a neuroscientist, and I feel like I'm way in over my head here, so just bear with me. I don't think any of you are neuroscientists to my knowledge, so maybe we're okay. <laughs> maybe somebody's watching on the live stream and wants to email me next week and tell me how I got it wrong. We're doing our best, okay? So I've been reading about this thing called the mirror neuron. Anybody ever heard of the mirror neuron? There is a lot of speculation, so I want to just sort of throw the disclaimer out there, but there's also a lot of science that says, hey, this is a really crucial part of our formation. So a mirror neuron, we think, involves the parts of our brain that see someone do something with intentionality and we copy it. Right, so if a kid sees their, like a baby or a toddler, sees their parent pick up a glass of water and take a sip, then they got, you know, sippy cups over there, mom's doing it, I'll do it too, right? 
Now, if you just sort of do crazy stuff and there's no clear intentionality about what you do, it's not clear that those parts of the brain engage. But when there is a perception of intentionality, an action with intent, then it engages a certain part of our brain that helps us feel that experience and duplicate it. So, you ever been watching a movie and something happens and it's really emotional and you feel it? Like you really, like maybe it's like some gory thing and you're just, no, I don't want to, this is, like I feel like I'm there and I don't like it, turn it off. Or maybe it's a romantic thing and you're like, I feel like I'm there and I really, like keep it playing. Or maybe it's something else, whatever it is, maybe it's really sad and you go, you know, like you have this deep emotional attachment. We think that's the part of our brain that involves these mirror neurons. So one of the scientists I looked at this week says that this is crucial for empathy. Like if you really, like if you, you know, someone you don't even know loses a child and you feel that and you kind of imagine how you would feel if you lost a child and it's scary and it hurts and you just kind of want to go hide in a closet and pretend it's not like you're not, like nothing's actually happened and there's no circumstance that could duplicate that in your life, but you feel it with them Mirror neurons, we think. Okay? So this helps us empathize with other people. It helps us transmit values to our kids, to the culture, to each other. So take that imitation and think about it in context of worship. So if I'm not seeing other people worship, is it having the same effect on me? If I'm out here by myself and I'm not imitating anyone else, is it having a transformative effect on me? Now, yes, like, by all means, read your Bible and pray alone. <laughs> don't, don't go home and say, well, the preacher said it's no use praying by myself, right? That's not what I'm saying. That's a spiritual discipline. It's crucial. It has its own thing happening. Do it. What I'm saying is, if we think that's a substitute for this, we have lost, like, we literally have lost our mind. Our brain, like we don't understand how our brains and our minds work. I need to see you gathered worshiping. It creates in my mind a feeling of communion, an ex not just a feeling, an experience of communion. You know, so when you're, you're, you're worshiping and there's that familiar song, holy, holy, holy. I loved hearing you sing holy, holy, holy this morning. I love, I, I could hear you and I loved it. And I could, I could, I could feel it. <laughs> and I thought, I'm ready to go preach now. Like I'm hearing the people of God declare the character of God in his holiness. Not once, not twice, three times over. Your worship produces something in me. It forms me. It shapes my desire. I want to be a part of this. It shapes my loves. I love this. That won't happen solo. It only happens when our minds and our bodies and our beings are together and, interact and relating to one another. This is part of the evidence 
that God has created us to relate to other people, like to other, other beings, other, other people. Like my mind is designed to perceive yours and to respond to that. And I think there's something deep and lovely, and I don't want to get too speculative here, but I can't help but thinking about the eternal triune character of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons eternally relating to one another, having built us in His image to relate to one another. (laughs) Not just in some abstract, non-physical, spiritual, soulmate way, but in some deeply, biologically, brain, chemical way. We are designed by God for that. And without it, we are going to miss out on the formative power of true worship. What I think doesn't define me, who I worship does. So if we want to pass along the values of the church, the gathering of the church is crucial. If we want to pass along the gospel, brothers and sisters, the gathering of the church is useful. I want to model love for the scriptures on Sunday morning. And my prayer is that that ignites something (laughs) in your neural network (laughs) that cultivates a love for the scriptures. This is about cultivating desires and love. It's not just rational argument. It's not just, do you understand it? It's, do I perceive that something crucial is happening right now? And then I have to ask myself, you know, what desires are being formed in me by the patterns of my life, right? So I'm looking at Amazon, and I'm on my phone, and I'm like, there's, like, have you noticed you can just scroll, and like, there's a never-ending list of things that they think I want. It, it literally never stops, Gift ideas, perfect for you. You looked at that book, maybe you want this book. Or hey, you know, how about a GPS watch? Or, you know, and some of the things, I'm like, where do they get that from? But they think I want it, so they show it, and it's never ending. And then I have to ask myself, like, what desire is that cultivating? It's cultivating something. What desire is it cultivating in me? What desire, if I let my kid have a hold of it, what desire is it cultivating in him or her? Well... <laughs> Commercialism, perhaps covetousness. Maybe I'm a workaholic. Maybe I'm cultivating desires around greed. Maybe I love violence in the theater. What is that doing to my affections? When I give myself to hours on end of violent gaming. Like again, not trying to be legalistic, but what does it do? Like what is, if I give myself for hours to, like, to bodies being ripped to shreds, whether it's in a book, on a screen, or whatever, like what, what is, what's that doing to my desires? It's a question, we should be asking that question. We should be asking that question. Entertainment? I mean, friends, we are an entertainment-driven society. We didn't used to be. Um, 
there's this, I'll say this briefly, some of you have heard it before, there's a field out there called media ecology. That sounds fascinating, doesn't it? Most of you are probably like, oh, what? Like, this was a great sermon until that happened. Like, what? Don't bring that. That sounds boring. Media ecologists study how major shifts in media change shape our societies. So, more than 2,000 years ago, uh, Plato, through the mouth of Socrates, expressed concern about people writing books. Because he was worried that if we start writing things down, we'll start forgetting them. Like if we move from an oral culture where we just are able to communicate orally long-term very accurately and we start writing things down, that that shift in media is going to have an effect on our bodies and our memories are going to fall apart, right? Now, how many of you used to be able to remember every phone number of every person you know? How many of you still remember every phone number? He was right! (laughs) Right? And it's even more so now, isn't it? If you haven't read the book uh, by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death, it's very short and it gets all this very nicely. But he, he argues that different media forms, books, smoke signals, screens, whatever they are. They, the guy who wrote the book, we didn't even have cell phones when he wrote this book. He was talking about Walter Cronkite, right? So even more so now. He says these different forms are they, like they're, they're targeted, they're biased towards different types of communication, right? So if you want to like make a long argument, you write a book. You don't pull out smoke signals, right? Those cones at the airport, do they still use those with the flashlights and the orange things? Those are really good for, for, for go that way, but it's not really good for I think, therefore I am, right? It's not precise. It's biased towards a certain, that media form is biased towards a certain kind of information, isn't it? So books and papers and are, 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 they train people to be able to pay attention for a really long time. And so when Lincoln and Douglas had their famous debates, uh, <laughs> let me just say, political debates used to be very different than they are now. If you don't know about this, go read up on it. It's fascinating. So they would sit around, and these are like blue-collar folks would go and listen to Lincoln and Douglas debate for hours. And so on one instance, Douglas gets up, and he makes this claim, and it's getting on to dinner time, and Lincoln gets up and says, you know, there's no way I can respond to that before supper, and I know y'all are hungry. So let's take a two-hour break. I'm going to work on my response. You go get some food. We'll meet back here at 7, and I'll give my response. They all left. They got some food. They all came back at 7, and these are not university professors. These are average, like, clock-punching people. They all come back and listen to Lincoln respond for two hours. No sound bites. No, like, your dad killed JFK, or your mama did whatever, or, you know, like, none of that kind of stuff, right? Nothing tweetable in those debates. And everybody listened intently for hours. Could you imagine that today? Change the channel. Boring. Why is that? Because screens bias us towards entertainment. We move from oral to written. We lose our ability to remember things. But we get really good at long arguments. We move from written to screen-based cultures, we get really bad at long arguments. And we get really bad at being able to follow long arguments. But we get really good at entertainment, which is why all of the major news outlets spend about a million dollars on their sets for election night. It spins lots of lights, 
supermodels calling out the headlines. Might as well be WWF the way that they yell at each other because it's all about entertainment, not information. It changes us. Like the way that we give ourselves to different things, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what, like, what, what, are, what desires are being formed in me? Is, is it a desire for entertainment? And here, I read this a couple years ago. If I find myself bored, it means I've probably cultivated a little too much entertainment. I heard a guy say one time, you, can, you go ask your great-grandfather who was plowing the field behind a mule if he was bored. Not even a category. You just do what you have to do to eat. Like, entertainment isn't really a question. Like, if you want to live, you do, you work. And nobody was going, man, I sure am bored. They're going, man, I'm hungry. <laughs> right? And the shift has changed us. So next time you go, hey, I'm, I'm feeling bored, just take that as a big red flag that we're over-entertained. And go read your Bible on your phone or something. It also raises questions for me about my kids, right? So what, if, like, Beyond myself, what patterns of life, what, like, what desires and what affections are being cultivated in my children? Right? Um, we know that our kids copy us, right? Parents, our kids copy us. If our kids are sinning, chances are they got it from us, right? We know that. We just get that out on the table. For better or worse, they copy us. Why? Because we are fundamentally imitators, right? We can tell them the right thing all day long. They still do, like they still develop the habits that we inculcate. They are imitators. The question then becomes, like, what am I giving my kid to imitate? And what desires are being cultivated and what affections are being cultivated in what I'm giving my kid to imitate? And if I'm fundamentally a worshiping thing, not a thinking thing, then how often does my kid see me worship? Like, take a second, parents. Like, if you're not, if your kids are out of the home, just, we'll be back, I'll be back to you in a second. Like, parents, let's just think about this for a second together. How much time during the week do my children see me worship the God who raised Jesus from the dead? Like, I want my kids to be Christians. I want them to love Jesus. But how much do they see me actually embody that sort of love? Right? Because maybe Christianity is caught as much as it's taught. Like, by all means, read the Bible stories. By all means, like, tell your kids what it means to follow Jesus and who he is and what he's done for them. But if we don't embody the truth that we teach, we're not going to make Christians out of our children. right? Because what I think doesn't define me, who I worship does. A lot of times when our kids come along and say, you know, hey mom, hey dad, I asked Jesus into my heart today. Sometimes our, 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 our reaction is, you know, like, let's give them a theology test. Like, do they know like the cross and the resurrection and like you ask Jesus into your heart, we got to make sure you know that. Why? Because we think we're thinkers. 
you know. And I've seen it, I've seen it happen where parents, like, hey, I want to follow Jesus. All right, well, let's find out how much you know. And the kid winds up crushed because all of a sudden they don't know enough. Or they can't quite articulate things the way that a, a grown-up articulates things. How should we respond? You, you want to follow Jesus? Let's worship him together. Let's give thanks to God that he's at work in your life. Jesus loves you so much, and yes, he died for you, and yes, he, he's been raised for you, and let's give thanks to him because his grace is operating in your life. His grace is there now. Like, what if we respond to our kids with this, like, let me show, if you want to follow Jesus, let me show you what that looks like. By all means, teaching is crucial. Modeling is just as, if not more, important because we are not primarily thinking things. We are worshiping. God has made us to be worshipers. That's one reason we don't do children's church for the whole hour and a half that we're in here. When it comes back, kids through second grade get excused just before the sermon, after we pray and sing together. Because I want your kids to see you worship. If they don't, don't expect them to learn to worship. Let's go worship God, and I'm going to shuffle my kids off away from me for an hour, hour and a half to do something else and copy other people who don't know how to worship, like other kids who don't know how to worship Jesus, and they're all just sort of in the same boat not knowing how to worship together, and never see me. Like, I want my kids to see what I do on Sunday mornings. Do I expect them to understand all of it? No. Because cognition is not the primary thing. I don't care if they're coloring in a coloring book for most of the time, honestly. When they're three, four, five, or six. That's fine. Over the years, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, after week, after week, after year, after year, after year of saying, you know what, every, like, and they're not, they're not articulating this cognitively, it, they just catch it. You know, every week, my dad stands up and talks for almost an hour, and people listen, most of the time, people listen. And every week they gather and sing, and every week they gather and pray, and I don't really know what's going on, and I don't, like, bottom line or something, and... Like, I can't remember that, and it doesn't, if I could, it doesn't quite make sense to me, but whatever they're doing must matter because they do it religiously. See how that works? I get that's sensitive. I don't really care because I love you. It takes time, it takes a long time. And it takes putting up with noise. Like, here's the thing, friends. Sometimes you all call me and go, I'm so sorry that my kid was so disruptive in church. And I go, thank you for bringing your kid to church. They can make all the noise they want. I don't care. Long as they're in the room watching you and everyone else do this because this is the most important thing you will do all week. What I think doesn't define me, who I worship does. 
my affections, my desires, my loves? Am I making decisions about my life that cultivate love for Christ and worship of the triune God in my life? Am I making decisions about my family that cultivate love for Jesus and worship of the triune God for my family or something else? And here's the thing, friends. When your kids grow up, they will be able to answer the question, who was God in my house? When my kids grow up, they will be able to answer that question. They know the right answer now. Jesus is God, of course. But later on, they'll see what we did with our time. And there will be a cumulative effect. Did we spend more time doing other things, prioritizing other desires, than we did worshiping God with the body of Christ? Not easy. But after all, discipleship and worship means giving something up. By the way, let me just commend the children in the room. You guys are spectacular today. Like, everybody's just like, I love it. I'm, I have eye contact with all the kids, and you are amazing, and I love you, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad. I wonder if we can shift our thinking. I wonder if we can, like, take a minute, last exercise, take a minute and just think, like, what's my primary identity? Is it mom? Is it dad? Is it boss? Is it business owner? Is it cowboy? Is it rancher? Like what, it, like what is my primary? Is it my vocation? Is it something? Is it my favorite sport? Maybe I'm a hunter. Maybe I'm a bookish kind of person. Like whatever it is, what's my primary identity? Like take a minute, just what's your primary identity? Now ask yourself, what's it going to take to transition from that a worshiper. What will it take? You're like, you're not giving that up. But what will it take for that to come under the umbrella of worshiper? I'm a worshiping father. I'm a worshiping pastor. I'm a worshiping employer. I'm a worshiping musician. Whatever it is. If what I think doesn't define me, who I worship does and what will it take for me to move to the place where my primary identity is lover of Jesus? What will it take for me to be one who is driven by an identity that says, I adore the Lord Jesus Christ more than anyone else or anything else? I, and I want my kids and my neighbors and the nation. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.